fellow writers, you have found Catherine's Corner of the Scripturian Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, a.k.a. Lewis, a.k.a. Catherine, we discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level. I feel like in most episodes I tell you there are going to be spoilers and then there are only light spoilers. Better safe than sorry, I would assume, but... If you haven't read the book in the title of this episode and you plan to one day, and I would recommend you do, uh, I, I need you to know that real spoilers are coming. This is no longer a drill. Enter at your own risk. That being said, whether you're a writer here for advice or a reader here for more content on a book you loved, welcome. Today we're going to be talking about Everless by Sarah Holland. So the reason I have to inevitably spoil this book is because we're going to talk about plot twists, and this book ugh, did them so well. And my fear, my fear is that I'm going to accidentally overhype it. I love this book. I read it in one sitting on a whim one night years ago, and I still think about it constantly. It is like my gauge, my top tier achievement level foreshadowing kind of story. I couldn't even begin to describe how pleasantly surprised I was by it. I was expecting a fun read, but wow. So I, I want to acknowledge that part of the reason I loved it might have been that I went into it with very average expectations, and so they were easier to meet than, of course, high expectations. Um, nothing is worse than hearing hype about a book and then finding it to be just okay. It's better to go the other way around, to go in with low expectations, and be super happily surprised. But regardless, with Everless, this I will stand on of the books I've read. Everless is the best hands-down example of a perfect opening paragraph and foreshadowing. Seriously, if you haven't read it, go read it before I ruin the experience for you, because I think you as writers can learn a lot about how to set up the plot twist from this book, and I think it's best to learn that through being surprised yourself. Um, for the rest of you who have read it or have no interest in reading it at all, Everless is about our main character, Jules, who lives in a society where time is money. Literally. Years of your life are transferable through magic. They make little coins out of the iron in your blood, and it takes time out of you and provides currency for everyone else. So if you're poor or in desperate need of money, you can sell some time off your life for the coins so that time can then be sold and used by the wealthy. Get born or made wealthy enough and you essentially never have to die, while the poor die constantly too young because they need to buy medicine or food um, and, and end up spending most of the years of their life on that. It's sort of like a Hunger Games situation where you can get food whenever you want, but you have to uh, take a hit for it. You have to put your name into the drawing and extra time for every bundle you take. In the Everless world, you don't starve, but you do shave off hours of your life with every meal. Jules, our main character, is born poor, or so we think at the beginning. It's just her and her father, and he has one rule. She is never allowed to convert her time into money for their needs. He will do it if they need it. He he will take the hit, never her. So he is getting extremely sick, extremely fast, and one day disappears entirely. So Jules decides to break this rule and sell some of her years to get some money to go find him. The problem? The process doesn't work on her. 
She's confused. The guy trying to take her blood is confused. No one can explain it. So she heads to the capital city called Everless, where the wealthiest live. Um, she and her father, it turns out, actually once lived there and fled mysteriously in the middle of the night, but she is now back and hoping to find someone there to help her track down her father and save his life. And, and that's where our story begins. So, first off, we have a super cool premise for a magic system here. The idea of time being money is a cliché, but this story makes it literal. Not only do they transform blood into time and time into money, but money can then be converted back into time. The wealthy therefore live longer. The poor have an ultimatum to contend with. This puts a major extra emphasis on money, which is already important to most people, and also creates a cool parallel to social issues about the poor. But more importantly, fantasy books in general don't often do enough with currency. That sounds strange, but any fantasy world, because you're building it from scratch, should have its own economic system and form of money. I know a lot of you might not care to think too deeply about it, but you should. Thinking about the money honestly can save you world-building work and even help you come up with a premise for the story itself. Keep in mind that currency is only valuable in so much as what it is backed by or what it represents. Bills and paper money in particular, as opposed to coins, have very little value in and of themselves. It's what they represent economically that makes them valuable. If society just collectively decided to cease valuing them, they would lose their value. So, depending on your theme and the reality of the world you've created, your world's money may be backed by plenty of various things that can indicate more about the world you've created. The US dollar, for instance, is backed by gold, at least it's supposed to be, very generally. This is partially why we in the US are so materialistic, I would say, um, as either a cause or effect, because our money is backed by a physical, unchangeable, versatile material item. But you can have currency in your world that is backed by magic or a specific type of magic. It can be backed by food or slave labor or entertainment or the metaverse stuff or anything like here in Everless, lifespans. Another good example of this is in Ready Player One, where the virtual world currency takes on real value in the real world. In Everless, you have time, lifespans, even hours of your life that convert into money. That's what's backing their money, and that's what they value. Whatever the society you've created values can be converted into something physical to represent that theoretical. This can also be a good way to illustrate conflict between different nations when they have different currencies that are backed by different things, i.e. representing different values. So however much effort you really want to put into developing a currency for your world building, just note that it should be somehow related to the values of that world, whether it be in quantity or what it's backed by or what it's made of or how the economic system works. Is it paper or coin or virtual or something else? And why? What is the wealth gap like? How much money do people have on them at any given moment, if anything? How is money earned? How is it taxed? These are great details to add richness to the world and to figure out what exactly the values are for your world if you don't know yet. But it can also potentially be a major factor in the plot like it is in Everless. All right, second off, we have a pseudo love triangle. <laughs> I say pseudo because it isn't immediately obvious that's what it is and it doesn't follow the usual pattern. Basically what I mean is that there are two love interests. When Jules returns to Everless, she finds her childhood friend Roan, i.e. the prince, and falls back into her crush on him. He sort of encourages it, but Roan is getting with any girl who will let him, if you know what I mean. Jules spends a large chunk of the book trying to ignore this because she's holding on so hard to this image she had of him from their childhood. But he is, basically put, 
a scoundrel. He's a very decent person otherwise, but he also has no backbone, and so his attractiveness kind of deflates over the course of the story. And her crush essentially goes unrequited in intensity and unfulfilled, ultimately. I think this is something YA doesn't do enough of. Not every crush turns into a relationship in real life. I know we as readers want to escape, but it's also fair to have a crush and not be ready or ultimately realize they're not right for you before getting too far. So I appreciated showing that dynamic here where there's a bit of angst and a bit of understanding, but an ultimately good decision maker in Jules who isn't going to be cowed by a pretty face. Now, Roan's brother on the other hand, is a dark horse love interest. He also has my favorite love interest to name, Liam. Um, And Liam starts out as an antagonist because Jules, incorrectly we learn later, remembers him trying to kill Roan when they were kids and therefore fears him. It was actually a misunderstanding where he was saving Roan, I think from her, if I'm remembering correctly, but believing him to be a jerk because she doesn't remember what happened. And because he's currently standoffish due to his scholarly, introverted ways, Jules doesn't trust him. Not even when he starts to show some positive traits, and she tries to avoid him as much as possible. But despite her best efforts to stay away, he's plot relevant. And so we slowly learn bit by bit that Liam might not actually be the bad guy. He has a backbone to defend Jules where Roan doesn't. He helps the poor by giving them stable jobs when a royal has wronged them. He's even trying to help Jules herself behind the scenes. Nothing concrete happens to them couple-wise in this book. Jules simply starts catching feelings before she has to run away. But he's still a love interest and he grows on you. And that's the point I want to make about love interests. Very few stories hide the love interest or let the characters grow there. We all love a good romantic subplot. That feels somewhat undeniable. But there is something to be said for the more realistic development over time. And I don't mean a slow burn. I mean where we as readers don't notice from that character's first scene that they're going to be a love interest. You can usually tell by the way a boy is introduced and framed, uh, the words used to describe him, the focus on appearance or the banter or his relevance to the plot, that he's gonna be the love interest. And same with female love interests. But writers, you can use red herrings or show the character changing her mind, like in this book, so the relationship grows more realistically and more surprisingly. That's, I think that's what I'm getting at. So, there are no surprising love interests anymore, or at least very few of them. Hide your love interest in plain sight. That's so hard to do because now we're expecting it. We are expecting a guy or girl to show up on the scene to be a love interest. So when we're looking for it, it becomes really hard to make it surprising, but it can be done. Holland made Liam an apparent villain, but not the main villain, um, so that we didn't see him as a love interest, but we also were able to accept it when he started to degree by degree show his positive traits. Um, And his behavior isn't justified. The things he's done wrong isn't justified. But by showing his behaviors were either misunderstandings or regretted past choices, we can get over this initial villain concept for him. Holland doesn't try to excuse his mistakes. She simply explains how good people can have negative or misunderstood qualities. And she shows how our perceptions of people are often wrong, how we can be convinced by even one thing, one misunderstanding, that a person is something they're not, which she then uses to show how that can be undone and rectified. All this allows Jules to show character growth and Liam to sneak up on us. 
especially since Jules is so focused on Roan, the red herring. By the time we as readers like Liam, the process has been so gradual from trusting Jules to thinking she might be too harsh on him that we don't even realize how we got there. He's not obvious from the first page. And this is a great tactic to give your tropes a little pizzazz. I think technically... I think I think this is an enemies to lovers, but not in a way that we see from page one. We don't see it coming. We build to it as a natural subplot part of the story rather than any kind of ultimate trajectory. This is both a healthy way to view relationships for teenagers, but also unique to the fantasy genre where soulmates or instant attraction are relatively rampant. And I would classify this as a love triangle in that there are two boys Jules is sort of choosing between. But... It doesn't happen at once. Her feelings for Roan fade pretty naturally because of Roan, not because of someone else, when she sees who he really is. She only starts to truly consider Liam once this happens. And she's never dating one while thinking about the other, which my adultery uncomfortable heart was really happy with. Even something like a love triangle trope doesn't have to follow a strict formula. Jules is interested in more than one guy throughout the book, these guys are important to the plot. She doesn't behave like an idiot or do unnecessary things to get their attention or choose between them. They're just a natural part of her life, a natural part of the setting. They come with the package. When you think about what tropes really represent, you can learn to subvert them. So love triangles typically show two paths a main character can take, show her forced to pick which path she wants her life to, to be on. And often, if done well, both paths are valid, if not just different. But instead of a competition here, Jules learns to see each boy for who he really is instead of the image, attractive or frightening, she had built up for them. And then her choice becomes pretty clear. She's clearing away faulty impressions rather than choosing between paths. And I think that was a really cool way to spin the trope. This is an example of how to do that, how to subvert a trope so it's there and appealing to that audience, but also new to that audience. People that like love triangles would probably like this. Also, I hate love triangles and I liked it, so it kind of bridges that gap. Um, if you're gonna, if you're trying to make a trope new, think about the purpose of that original version of the trope. Like love triangles being about choosing between two paths or enemies to lovers being about bridging the gaps in worldviews and combine or switch up the theme or the catalyst associated with it, like Holland does here, changing the love triangle to a perception problem rather than a path problem. I think it was really well done and would recommend you try something similar to mix up tropes, especially if you're writing in a really saturated genre like YA fantasy with a really saturated trope like a love triangle. Now, onto the opening lines of Everless. In the first chapter, Jules is just walking in the forest near her home, musing about the environment and her society and this tale about the alchemist. The last line of the first paragraph is, Even the spirit of the alchemist himself is said to wander these woods, trapping whole eternities in a breath. It seems, at the time, to simply be poetic or an introduction to the world. It is both of these things, but it is also an enormous foreshadowing, because Jules turns out to be the alchemist, the reincarnated, timeless immortal, and she was walking in those woods. She was commenting on herself, and she didn't even know it. As a writer, that reveal was just too cool. I loved it. I see what Holland did there. It was cleverly written in to give us information without seeming very literally important. I mean, it was right there, and I didn't see it, and yet it fits so perfectly by the end. Little lines like that are ugh, 
I don't want to say essential, but I'm going to say essential to making your story feel big and inevitable and wonderful. And something like this is really what a first line or a first page should do. It should resonate the entire theme or story of the book readers are about to get. They should have a good idea of where it's going thematically and atmospherically as well as plot-wise and character-wise. If you're going for a big plot twist like Holland pulled off here, giving teensy, teensy tidbits of info on that plot twist is a great way to start that first chapter, both to already start providing readers with the foundational necessary pieces and also for that later sense of retrospective awe. If you're struggling to figure out where to start your story, by the way, look at the plot twist or ending and think about what kind of scene will resonate with readers most in a full circle or foreshadowing way. If you're not sure where to start, Start with the ending. Think about where you intend to end things. Start the beginning with clues about the ending, or share a location between the beginning and ending, or mirror a task at the end that you started with in the beginning. That gives a book a full circle vibe, and it is hands down my favorite effect. Especially in a series, it can make the book feel like its own rather than only an installment, but even in a standalone, this is excellent. It makes it feel complete by the end. Um, But back to the foreshadowing, the use of placeholder titles like The Alchemist and the immediate reveal of information at the beginning helps us know it's important, but not quite how. The legend continues to be interspersed throughout the story, which makes it feel like a world-building detail rather than anything specific to Jules. So the impact of that twist, that she's part of the legend, is really satisfying because it didn't come out of nowhere. We knew what she was talking about when she talked about the alchemist, and it's better really for readers to see a plot twist coming, maybe earlier than you intended, rather than for it to come out of nowhere. I understand. I I get it. You don't want them to figure it out too soon, but if you have to lean one direction, too much information is better than not enough when it comes to foreshadowing. Beta readers can help you determine if you're timing the reveal right, but ultimately when it doesn't come out of nowhere, when it's truly built up to, readers will still feel that shock and, you know, the cleverness of the way you wove it in rather than confusion, and you certainly don't want to confuse readers. So you should really be going for readers kind of picking up on what's going on right before the reveal takes place. And I just, I just think this book did plot twists really well overall. The alchemist isn't the only legend in the book. He has a rival, a former friend turned enemy in The Sorceress, capital A, capital S. She, the sorceress, doesn't age while the alchemist gets reincarnated every generation. Now, we as readers are led to believe the queen is this sorceress, the queen that's now in Everless. She's suspicious and super old, and Jules is sure. Uh, She wears a veil, and her touch, which is supposed to be avoided at all costs, seems to do what the touch of the legend should do. But there in the background is always Caro, her servant. She just happens to touch everyone the queen touches, though this feels very natural as she's trying to keep people away from the queen. She just happens to be there when the queen makes big decisions, though this feels natural because she's supposed to wait on her. Caro is always there, and it feels very natural. So when it's revealed that Caro is actually the sorceress, manipulating this old woman who used to be her friend into her red herring queen so she can lure in and yet still hide from the alchemist, it all fits and yet is also shocking. Caro is actually in control. The queen is just a puppet. (laughs) I love that trope. It hits so hard. And I mean, Caro and Jules have become friends at this point um, in the book. Caro seems super cool. Uh, The alchemist and the sorceress 
were once friends, but now they are enemies too. And all of Caro's intentions and concerns are subtly twisted to, like the boys in the love triangle, reveal themselves as something they hadn't seemed to be before. This book has a lot to do with perception. Um, so there's betrayal woven into this reveal as well because they're friends and because Caro seemed to be concerned about one thing when she was actually concerned about another. Every, every word Caro previously said takes on new meaning. And this is particularly hard to do well. You, as the writer, have to be so careful in the words you choose and in when a person with different motivations wouldn't wouldn't speak and what they wouldn't wouldn't say and how they might feign concern or show concern but for a different reason than assumed, it's hard. I have a certain reveal in one of my books like this and I was constantly stressed when writing it that it was either too obvious in the stilted language when I was trying to make them not lie or not understandable enough because the character was willing to lie. You have to nail the subtext when it comes to a betrayal or a hidden in plain sight trope like this, even if the characters are lying and, and therefore it might be more difficult to tell what they're truly up to, you, you've got to hint at it, right? The character can say anything, but when are they speaking? To distract or to shift the conversation or to glean information, to undermine a particular person or viewpoint or to lift up a particularly gullible person? Whose side do they take in arguments and might that be a clue? What is their body language like? Are they there for certain scenes and absent for others in telling ways? Who notes their absence? What are some double entendres they can use or twists on the truth in their phrasing? Do they ever share their background? Are they ever called out for lying and how do they handle it? Do they use emotions to manipulate or to justify their over-concern for objects or people? Think all of this through <laughs> when creating a character that's going to be a betrayal plot twist later. You want the reread potential to be there so someone reading it again, knowing the twist, can read a line and think, how clever that foresight was. In retrospect, they can be like, oh, that's what they meant when they said that. Don't just have them lie super convincingly the entire time so that the reveal comes out of nowhere. There should be hints. You don't want to give too much away in the moment of the first read, though. That's a balancing act. <laughs> it can be done and should be. I think these tropes are underrated um, because they're hard to do, but use them. I think going for the risk is better than going for the safe option here, even if the risk doesn't technically pay off. So long as you're foreshadowing that betrayal piece by piece well enough that that reveal makes sense rather than needing to be explained, I, I think it's going to be satisfying. I think it's going to be good. Um, and again, beta readers can tell you if you need to add or delete certain phrases or certain pieces of information, but... You want to make sure that if someone is going to turn out to be a traitor, that there were actually hints that they were a traitor all along, but not in a way where readers can guess it right up front. It's not necessary for every story, of course, um, but if you do find that that's something you want to try, go for it, because even, even if it doesn't pay off for readers, it will pay off on a character development level. Um, if your character doesn't see it coming, and as long as you're not making them like super blind about it, even if the readers get it, the effect will still land with the character. So I love betrayal tropes. I love hidden in plain sight tropes. Um, I would like to see more of them. It's not that they're rare. It's just that I would take all of them. So um, just make sure that you're doing that foreshadowing work. And I think it'll be good. I That's all I'm going to say. I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface 
of Everless. I just gave you like a few of my favorite parts. Um, there's all kinds of stuff going on that I didn't even talk about. Um, there's Roan is engaged and the girl he's engaged to is like the ward of the queen and she and Jules also become friends and they have a past connection that they discover along the way. Liam is doing his own research into something. There, there, there's a lot going on and it's really good. I enjoyed it. Um, so if, if, if you've made it this far into the episode, I know I've already spoiled the life-changing thrill this book could be for you, but even so, I would still recommend reading it if you haven't. At that point, just look at how Holland hides the truth in plain sight. It's a skill and it's a major tool you can use as a writer so that your ending hits hard. Um, that being said, that's all I have for this episode. Thank you for listening and I'll see you on the next page. <laughs>